Well, in just five days or 140 hours or 8,400 minutes, if you're counting, most kids in Saskatchewan go back to school. Well, for parents, it can be the most wonderful day of the year. For kids, reconnecting with friends aside, it's a chance to learn, the chance to develop the knowledge and skills that will allow them to best function in a 21st century economy and society, the chance to become the best possible citizens, the chance to reach their full potential. But what's the best way to teach them, the best way to get them there? Well, in recent years, the act of learning facts and figures by rote has given up ground to the act of learning through critical thinking. School divisions have spent more time developing programs that teach students to think their way through problems, worrying less about the hardcore memorization that many of their parents grew up with. So what do you think? In the 200 or so school days we have in a year, which is the better approach to teaching kids from kindergarten to grade 12? Give us a call right now. It's 1-800-716-2221. You can send your thoughts to us via email. It's bluesky at cbc.ca. Reach us on Twitter, bluesky, uh, that's at bluesky.cbc. So once again, our telephone number, 1-800-716-2221. Your emails can come to bluesky at cbc.ca. And uh, we'll take your calls uh, over the next few minutes. But first, we're going to hear from a teacher who has given this a whole lot of thought. Michael Ziegstra is a high school teacher and a senior fellow with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. His latest work has just been published by the Frontier Centre. It's called Content Knowledge is the Key to Learning. Michael Zwagstra joins us now. Hi, Michael. Hi, Garth. Good to be with you. Well, good to have you back. Um, let's clear up a definition here. What do you mean when you talk about content knowledge? Well, when I talk about content knowledge, content knowledge I'm talking about uh, basically discrete facts, specific things that, uh, that people should know. So, for example, in a subject like history, content knowledge would include things like knowing dates, places, uh, people, uh, major events. In a subject like science, it would include knowing about scientific laws and concepts and definitions of various things. And in an area like math, uh, it would include uh, things such as your multiplication times tables and knowing the standard algorithms for uh, uh, adding subtracting, multiplying, and dividing. And obviously there's a lot more to it than that, but at a basic level, that's, uh, those are the types of things I'm referring to when I'm talking about content knowledge. Okay, Michael, what leads you to conclude that learning those facts and concepts is, uh, pardon me, more important or as important than teaching kids how to find answers for themselves? did in the report was I took a look at what does the, the evidence actually show. And so I, I did my best to cite uh, peer-reviewed academic studies that, uh, that, that back up uh, certain key points. And there's a few things. I mean, first of all, uh, we know that reading is, is one of, if not the most important skill that students lose, learn in school. You know, you have to learn how to read. And a lot of the debate about how best to teach reading tends to focus on the whole phonics versus whole language debate. But that's only half of the equation. The other half the equation is reading comprehension, understanding what you're reading. And one thing that the evidence is very clear about is that the more you know about the topic of an article that you're reading or a book that you're reading, the more that you're able to understand it. If you, uh, if you don't know anything about the, the content of what you're reading, then you're not going to be able to read it successfully, or at least not without great difficulty. And so the more knowledge you have in your brain, the more that you know about various things, the more that you're going to be able to understand what you're reading. Hence, the more you'll be able to read and the more you'll be able to know. So content knowledge is absolutely essential for uh, learning how to read. Um, what have you learned during your own years of teaching about, about these approaches? Well, and this has been confirmed by my experience, and I'll give one very specific example. I teach high school now, but I used to teach grade 5. 
And one of the things I had to do in grade five was assess reading levels of students. And so I'd be getting, they were called running records, where I would have students read a page uh, from uh, a, a, an article that was written at an approximately grade five level and then evaluate where their reading is at. And I noticed very quickly that the students who were reading the article about, I believe it was baseball, did a whole lot better on the reading comprehension questions than the students who are reading the Dr. Norman Bethune article, the, the doctor from Canada who went to China. The, and I found out, yeah, I realized that the students, they didn't have any content knowledge. They didn't know anything about Bethune and the, the context in which he was in. And so even though that article was at the same technical reading level, you know, in terms of it being at an approximate grade five level, there was a world of a difference between reading the article about a subject they knew something about and reading an article they knew nothing about. And that was one of many experiences I had, which, which confirmed to me that the background knowledge you have, the facts you have in your brain, largely determine what it is that you're able to read. All right, listeners, uh, over to you now. Old school or new school? As kids go back to school, uh, we'd like to know what you think is the best approach to teaching them. Is it focusing on content knowledge, the facts and concepts that previous generations have had to commit to memory, or more of a critical thinking-based approach which gets students to solve problems for themselves? Give us a call right now. It's 1-800-716-2221. You could uh, join us by email. It's bluesky at cbc.ca or reach us on Twitter at bluesky.cbc. Our guest today, Michael Zwagstra, is a high school teacher and senior fellow with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Um, Maeve is on the line in Saskatoon. Hi, Maeve. Hi. Hi. What are your thoughts on, on these approaches? Well, I'm really interested to hear what your specialist had to say, your guest. Um, I just spent the morning at my kids' school. I know it's school hasn't started yet, but I'm uh, the chair of our school and community council. And uh, I, I spent the morning putting stair decals on the stairs, and these decals are the times tables. They go all the way up three flights of stairs and have the times tables up to 12. Um, and I did this as a project because uh, I've been... Um, concerned and a bit dismayed over the course of my kids' um, years in elementary school at the switch from um, knowing the basics to, especially in math, what we termed new math. And mm -hmm. I found that my kids um, were flailing because they didn't have the basics anymore. And I think that the pendulum has swung back and it's maybe going to fall somewhere in the, in the middle. And, and I think that's great because I think that you need to teach kids the basics and the facts and the content knowledge and you need to teach critical thinking. But you can't do the critical thinking if you don't have those basic skills. So learning things like your times tables and, and the basic um, knowledge around reading in order to understand, um, you know, what you're reading is really important. So content knowledge and critical thinking together, really important. Maeve, thanks so much for joining the conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. And again, folks, uh, the conversation today is about uh, the approaches to learning. As uh, kids get ready to go back to school, we're asking you, what do you think? Old school or new school? Is content knowledge, knowing the facts and the figures and the concepts that uh, uh, should be committed to memory, uh, more important or as important than the uh, more... Uh, uh, in vogue approach, I think, of critical thinking-based uh, knowledge, which uh, is supposed to help students find ways to solve problems for themselves. Give us a call right now with your thoughts, 1-800-716-2221, or you can email us, it's bluesky at cbc.ca. Um, Michael, uh, uh, just uh, before we took our, our little break there, um, I guess I'm, I'm curious about where do you get this background knowledge you were talking about, if not through reading about it? 
Well, by talking about it. I mean, and so when, that's why this is so important starting at kindergarten and grade one, that students need to, teachers need to be in discussing things with their students, informing them. And yes, that does mean a fair amount of time where the teacher does talk, not just standing in front lecturing, but actually engaging them in learning about history and science at a reasonable level of depth. And because we know that when students come to school, they don't all come at the same level. Some students come from, you know, richer homes, some come from poorer homes, and on average we know the students from poorer homes uh, tend to come in with a pretty big deficit, and that's because their parents usually aren't reading to them, they're not getting private tutoring, where if you're coming from an upper-class home, you're doing more educational excursions, your parents are often talking with you about some more sophisticated things based on the job they may happen to have and, and that. And so we need to level the... We need to level it out, and one of the best ways to do that is by having a strong focus and content knowledge right at the beginning of school, because if the disadvantaged students don't get that content at the beginning, they'll fall further behind in their reading comprehension, and they'll read even less, and then they'll fall farther behind in, in, in higher grades as well. So the content is just critically important for all students, but especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds. All right. I want to bring Jim into the conversation in Saskatoon. Hi, Jim. Hi, Garth. Um, I think, like anything in life, I think you need a balance of both approaches. They're all different approaches. I think uh, you want to take the best strategies, methods, techniques, and uh, use them in the correct situation. So if a kid learns one way, uh, you teach them in that way. If another student has a different learning style, you teach them in a different way, and you try to you know, do that as best you can with 30 kids in the classroom, whatever you have. That's what I was going to ask you, Jim. How do you how do you do that when, you know, class sizes are, are so big now? You know, 28 to 33 is not un, un, unusual, yeah. even in even in elementary school. Yeah, well, I guess you still have to mix up your, your methods for, you know, for, for the, sort of the middle 20 or so, and then you have the upper, the kids that do really well academically, and then the lower kids that struggle. But uh, I think you, just, you can still mix up your methods and strategies even within that class, and you can rephrase things as you teach it and um, present it in different ways, and, some, you know, somebody's going to grab it. Michael, go ahead and jump in here. I think that what's really important to note here is that you know we hear the word balance a lot, and by definition, balance is always the best approach. I mean, how can you be against uh, against balance? What I would suggest the proper balance is is making sure that the content knowledge is first and foremost. That doesn't mean that that prescribes the methods that we're using. So, because I agree that depending on the type of class that we have, and frankly, also depending on the different types of content we deal with, we do teach in a variety of ways, and that's fine. I wouldn't want everyone to teach exactly the same way every day. That would get rather boring. We should use a variety of strategies, a variety of methods, while making sure that we are passing along as much of the substantive content as we can. So the proper balance here is keeping that focus on content and using whatever strategies and methods we need to do in order to make sure that students are fully engaged with it. Yeah, I would agree with that, but I'd say that some students do very well memorizing facts and it comes very quickly. Other students will need to figure it out and uh, experience it. Like even your baseball analogy, if you do something hands-on, you learn it way faster. And I think a lot of the problem-solving approaches nowadays uh, incorporate that. And it's more experiential and, uh, and hands-on stuff. And then the kids actually realize how things come around, like how that's why the times table works. It's because it, it follows rules and, and you can and see experience in real life, and uh, it, it, it lasts so much longer with them. 
That's true, and and this, the methods we use will depend on the students and the content. But I do want to say one thing here, and I, I don't want to go off track here, but you, you've mentioned the learning styles a number of times, and the evidence is crystal clear on this, that this idea that some people are tactile learners and others are, kinest, are, are, are auditory and others are visual, there is no evidence for that. This is, uh, and in terms of the psychological community, it's overwhelming in terms of the evidence that that just simply doesn't hold. It's not true that some people are visual and auditory learners. It is true that depending on the content and the particular situation, sometimes a picture is better than words. In certain cases, other times the words are better. And in many cases, you do all three, but you don't slot students into, you're a visual learner, so I'm going to show you the pictures, and you're an auditory learner, so I'm going to talk to you. That is where uh, damage can be done with the learning styles theory, because it is not supported by the evidence. Yeah, I think earlier you mentioned uh, that uh, assessment with uh, using bassoon and, and uh, baseball. I, I did the same one, and I didn't notice any difference. That's just from experiential, but from my experience, kids do learn differently, and uh, and that's why I guess when you, you go to university or upper levels, polytechnic, people find their own way of learning and their own uh, field mm-hmm. that they feel comfortable in. That's all I'll say. Okay, Jim, thanks so much for joining the conversation today. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Um, okay, folks, again, we're talking about uh, teaching methods today. Uh, kids are getting ready to go back to school just a few days from now. Um, what do you see your own kids learning when they bring home the homework? Do you agree with our guests that it's time to kind of get back to the basics, or maybe uh, you've uh, seen the benefits of different approaches to teaching? 1-800-716-2221. Um, you can email bluesky at cbc.ca or reach us on Twitter at bluesky_cbc. Uh, Michael, just uh, while you and Jim were uh, were talking, it, it struck me that um, you know there's obviously uh, some debate between you and Jim over whether different people learn differently. But what do you do with the with with a kid who's maybe uh, uh, you know in the in the top two or three percentile when it comes to leading, reading and reading comprehension? They do really well in uh, you know in the social sciences. But they're, you know, at the in the bottom tenth when it comes to uh, math. What do you, what do you do with with kids in the, like that? And that's not that unusual that kids will be really strong in one area, not in the other. How do you, um, in a class of thirty, uh, approach those individual needs? Well, it's it's a good question, and yes, that does happen. Uh, not that is not that's not the norm. Most of the time, uh, students that are substantially weak in an area such as uh, reading and language arts will often be weak in math too. But not always. I mean, there are there are certainly exceptions. Uh, I think the key thing is is that making sure that to the greatest degree possible that students are mastering some of the basics and fundamentals. Because if you're weak, you actually need the practice even more than someone who's picking it up naturally. And so, in an area like math. If you don't know your times tables, like, which is really straightforward, really basic, if you don't know that, you will struggle in math every single year you're doing math. If you don't know the, if you don't know the basic order of operations by memory in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, do you divide first or add first? If you don't know that by memory, every time you're doing an algebra uh, problem and solving an equation, you will struggle because you're always having to look it up. Uh, there's a concept in psychology that's called cognitive load, and this. this idea that uh, our working memory can only handle so much at a time. And so the more you put into your long-term memory where you've repeated and you have practice, it literally frees up space in your working memory so that you can get stuff done. And that's why someone can easily remember their home phone number with no difficulty because they've got it memorized. They don't have to waste 
precious working memory space trying to remember their home number, but you give them a random seven-digit number, and it's tough to memorize because they're, str they're using their working memory. So on a subject like math, the more we can help students get into their long-term permanent memory through a certain amount of practice, the more likely that they'll be able to engage with the material that's before them. Okay, now, Michael, obviously you're not uh, arguing that uh, critical thinking skills aren't important. Nope. But uh, tell me um, the connection then between that content knowledge and critical thinking skills. Well, the, the connection is this. Critical thinking is often presented these days as an abstract skill, that once you learn how to think critically, you can just apply it to whatever you're looking at. And that's just simply not true. Critical thinking is not a generic transferable skill. Uh, it's a skill which is heavily dependent on content knowledge. If you don't know anything about a topic that you're supposed to be thinking critically about, you cannot think critically about it. It is impossible. And so the debate that's going on about Johnny McDonald and schools being named after him, you can't have, offer intelligent thought on that unless you know some facts about Johnny McDonald. If you don't know anything about him, you're not able to think critically. Now, I will add that I fully recognize that knowing a lot about something does not guarantee critical thinking. You can know a lot and still be brainwashed uh, and, and have a bias that you don't overcome. But the knowledge is a prerequisite for critical thinking. It doesn't mm -hmm. guarantee critical thinking, but the critical thinking will not and cannot happen without having at least some knowledge in place ahead of time. All right, folks, uh, we are talking about teaching methods today. What worked for you when you went to school? What do you see your own kids learning, you know, when they bring home their homework? And do you agree with our guest is a time to get back to the basics of, of actually knowing a subject matter? Or maybe you're seeing the benefits of a different approach to teaching. Give us a call right now with your thoughts. It's 1-800-716-2221. You can email bluesky at cbc.ca or reach us on Twitter where we are at BlueSkyCBC. The telephone number again is one 800 Seven one six two 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 one. Do you think uh, school divisions are doing a very good job of finding the balance here, Michael, or is the pendulum swung hard one way? I think the pendulum has swung too far away from the importance of content knowledge. And I will say that advocates have, it's often called the 21st century learning approach. There's various buzzwords that are used, but that one's pretty common where you'll hear that we're doing 21st century learning, we're going to focus on creativity and collaboration and critical thinking. If you're hearing those buzzwords, it usually means that they've swung in the direction of we're teaching these things as generic skills and it's being presented as because there's so much information out there, we're going to teach them how to look it up and how to get the information rather than trying to present them with the information itself and have them commit some bit to memory. And I think that's problematic. I think the balance uh, needs to move much farther in the direction of making sure that we identify some defined knowledge and skills everyone should have and make sure that students acquire it because then they can think critically and then they can move on. But if you don't acquire that basic knowledge, you're going to struggle with any aspect of critical thinking. Okay, I'm going to bring John into the conversation in Saskatoon. Hi, John. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Go ahead. Um, so for context, um, I am a substitute teacher. I spent a year teaching a band to elementary school students. Um, and now I'm a substitute by choice. Uh, I didn't exactly uh, love my full-time position. But um, through my substitute teaching, I've had the opportunity to see a large number of classrooms at a large number of age ranges. And what I'm seeing a lot in high schools is that students are often um, unable to perform actions without very clear guidelines and directions and uh, steps forward. 
And I think this is what a lot of uh, this sort of critical thinking, these sort of um, broader ideas of teaching uh, are, are about is instead of looking for, okay, I have nine times nine, I need to do 81. It's um, how, what do I need to do next? How do I identify these problems? In some cases, when you're working, depending on the type of job that you're doing, I can totally understand that some of those more, um, those base level knowledges are important. Um, but I think increasingly for a lot of people being able to identify what is the problem, what are ways of looking at this problem, what are different ways that I can um, see this is super important. And I think, but, oh, go ahead. Yeah, do you agree though with, with Michael's premise though that you still have to have a pretty good grounding in the basic facts. I I absolutely do to an extent, but I mean, I certainly, uh, when I was in uh, elementary school, not that long ago, I remember my uh, grade four teacher, Miss McMillan, shout out, um, saying, uh, you're never going to have a calculator in your pocket at all times. And that's mm -hmm. not true. We all know that now. So there's a level of, yes, you should have these basic facts, but I also know plenty of 60-year-olds uh, who didn't uh, learn their times tables yeah. and are still using calculators. But uh, I, just before I let you go, because I'm, I'm really curious about this topic today, um, mm -hmm. we all have Google in our pocket now, too. Does that mean we just don't need school? Um, the school, I think, um, and this is, I guess, primarily the big argument, is that school should be about teaching us how to learn um, and how to best learn um, our different, I, uh, how to best sift through knowledge. Uh, how to accumulate knowledge. And when you're, you know, 5 to 10 to 12, to honestly, 5 to 20, mm -hmm. um, you still don't know how to best accumulate knowledge and you need help through uh, teachers and other people to guide you through that. John, thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks very much, Garth. Michael, i got about a minute left and I, I've wanted to ask you this every time we get together. And that is, what is it about the profession or, or the calling of education that it always seems to be on a pendulum, that, that there always seems to be the in thing until that's proven to be, you know, less than ideal. And then we go on to the next in thing. And I often wonder how many generations have been sort of screwed up by educational philosophies. No, it's a good question. And the reality is that, unfortunately, uh, the, the the practice of, of research and following it in education is uh, is not followed terribly well. It's, an, it's a profession that's easily dominated by ideologies because the studies are social science. Uh, there, there's, there's a certain amount of subjectivity that comes in. Um, everyone has been to school, so everyone has an opinion. And so it's easy to form an opinion. And that sort of can factor in. But it's... Uh, and, and People's careers are often dependent on doing something new, and uh, schools really like to trumpet the new things they're doing, the new initiative, the new fundraising thing, the new this, the new that. Uh, but it's a whole lot less exciting to report on the fact that Miss So-and-so with her grade five students painstakingly taught them some important stuff about the history of Canada that's going to benefit them the rest of their lives. That just doesn't make it into the newsletters. It doesn't make it on in, in terms of the news reports about something flashy and new. And so there's a variety of reasons that education swings in pendulums, but this desire for something new, unfortunately, is what happens with education fads is that they fail and they fall away and then they get renamed and done again. I mean, this stuff I'm talking about, 21st century learning, read William Hurd Kilpatrick's Project Method article from 1918 and it's the exact same thing as problem-based learning, inquiry learning, all of that stuff. I mean, he was writing about this 100 years ago. Uh, it's been around, come around, and these things, they fail, they, they go away, and then they get renamed and pushed again. Michael, it's always fascinating conversation. Thanks so much.
Well, always good to be with you, Gar. Thank you. Bye-bye, sir. Bye. Um, you can keep this conversation going uh, online. You can find the Blue Sky Twitter thread or send your email to bluesky at cbc.ca or give us a call on TalkBack. It's one 800 7162 pardon me, one 800 7540 Talkback is one 800 7540 Our thanks again to Michael Zwagstra, a high school teacher and senior fellow with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy.